Welcome to Baines Explains, your guide to navigating the tricky issues facing businesses today. I'm your host, Julian Whittle. Each episode, I'll be chatting to specialists from Baines Wilson to find out more about the legal topics that will affect your business. In this episode, Baines explains how the pandemic has affected commercial property and insolvency. Hello, I'm here with Christopher Clayton, a solicitor advocate at Baines Wilson, who specialises in dispute resolution and litigation. We'll be exploring how the COVID-19 pandemic has affected, in particular, commercial property and insolvency. Chris, let's begin with commercial property. What has it been like for commercial landlords and tenants during the pandemic? Hi there, yeah, thank you for having me. Yes, uh, it's been a challenging time for for everybody uh, in society, not just uh, commercial landlords and tenants, but uh, since we're here to talk about those, yeah. yes, we'll we'll run through the particular challenges that they've uh, they've faced throughout the last eighteen months or so. Um, it's been a challenge on both sides of the fence, quite frankly. Uh, a lot of tenants have experienced issues with their businesses facing forced closure. Um, everyone knows about the pain uh, the hospitality sector, particularly, have uh, borne throughout the whole of the pandemic. Um, but the opposite side of that coin is that the landlords haven't been getting paid their rents. So it's been a tightrope to walk between balancing the interests of, of both of those two uh, parties because on the one hand, the tenants can't be blamed for their businesses um, being forced to close, but then on the other hand, there's a liability there which exists to the landlord and it's not their fault either. So the challenge that we've been facing as lawyers advising either side um, is on the one hand, if you're advising the landlord, um, we have to talk to the tenants uh, constantly and appreciate the difficulties they face. And then similarly for the tenants, the, the best advice to them throughout the pandemic was always communicate with your landlords um, because there is a liability there and there's a situation that, that needed to be resolved. Um, I think by and large, most commercial property landlords and tenants, I think it's generally agreed that the landlords bore the brunt of the situation really because um, often vast amounts of money were owed to them and they had very limited means of recovering that when, when they weren't getting paid. So it was a challenge. It was a challenge. Well, I'd like to touch on that because I mean, I remember very early in the pandemic, measures were put in place to protect to protect tenants. Can you talk talk through what those were and where where those measures left landlords really? Yes, absolutely. I think um, firstly, I think the government can be credited with acting really really quickly um, when these issues first became apparent. Um, but it was very reactionary. Um, one thing uh, that really um, sought to assist the parties was the implementation of what we call SEGA, or the Corporate Insolvency and Government Act. And that came uh, that brought with it um, an associated uh, temporary insolvency practice direction as well. Uh, and the effects of those two things were to sort of suspend uh, the landlord's right to use a winding-up petition um, uh, to recover debt, um, and for landlords in particular as well, uh, they were no longer allowed to forfeit their leases if, if um, the reason for non-payment related to the, to the pandemic. Um, and various other things came in, into force as well. Uh, it, those things brought in with them um, things like restructuring plans, which were seen as an alternative to traditional CVAs or creditory, credit, creditors' voluntary arrangements. Um, and it brought with it a, a moratorium as well in terms of credit action. As soon as any creditor gets a sniff that a business may well be entering or flirting with insolvency, um, it can alert them that their debts too might not be paid. Uh, and it extended the moratorium to 20 business days, which was actually extendable without consent to 40 business days, which in reality meant a 40-day period in which creditors couldn't bring 
bring actions. Um, and then finally, uh, from the landlord's perspective, uh, their rights under the commercial rent uh, arrears recovery um, were also suspended. So they couldn't appoint bailiffs to seize and control tenants' goods uh, to try and recover their um, debts that way. Um, and in, in effect, it really left the landlords with, with, with nowhere to go. Uh, the, fundamentally, there was still a contractual liability there, and there was a claim for a breach of contract, but that was pretty much the only recourse a landlord could have taken. So, so given all, all those restrictions, what, what have you been able to do for landlords? Well, um, as, a, as, as just very briefly touched on there, ultimately there was still a breach of contract claim available, but that was almost pointless if your tenant couldn't um, afford to pay the debt, if, if for example, it was, was forced to close. So the, the best advice we were able to give landlords at the time was to talk to your tenants, negotiate deals, try and ease the pain as much as you possibly could, because ultimately something over nothing has to be to be beneficial. Um, and and that, that really was the way landlords navigated their, their way through the trouble. And what's the situation now? Because I think I mean, the government is, is, is winding down these protections for tenants. So what legislation is the government enacting um, to, re- you know, to replace them? And what, what effect will that have? Yeah, the, the biggest introduction that we're all anticipating now, we're all eagerly waiting for it to pass through Parliament, is uh, without doubt the Commercial Rents uh, Coronavirus Bill call it bill at the moment because it's not yet law and that is expected to pass through the parliamentary uh, procedure on the 25th of march 2022 Um, all indications are that that is going to happen but i suppose we'll still have to watch this space Um, and what that will do is effectively end all of the measures um, i've just been talking about talking about Uh, and specifically in relation to property matters it's going to um, herald a new sort of temporary era, if, if you like, uh, to deal with these problems, because what, what we're facing at the moment is still a period of time in which commercial rents haven't been paid. Um, so it's going to introduce a new uh, measure to deal with that. It's going to ring-fence debts related to commercial rents. Um, and by ring-fence, what I mean by that is um, if a business is to enter some sort of insolvency procedure, that rent is going to be protected and there'll be a separate means of resolving disputes in relation to that. And how that will happen is through um, a new arbitration scheme, and it will be binding on both parties. Um, and that is that is the biggest change, I think, uh, that will come into the, the property sphere in, in the next uh, month or so. Um, that will also that will also bring with it a, a, another extended moratorium, and that moratorium will exist until the arbitration process is concluded. Uh, if there is no arbitration, it will be six months after the passage of the Act. So that's how um, the new world is going to look. And to what tenancies will this this legislation apply and, and to what arrangements will, will they not apply? That's a good question, actually, because it's not, uh, not as straightforward as you might think it is. Uh, at the moment, we think it's going to relate to all business tenancies. And so the obvious question will be, what is business tenancy? <laughs> um, and it will include any lease, so any written lease, any underleases, so that will apply where if you're a landlord, you've granted one lease and then that tenant has then granted a lease underneath that one. Um, it will also apply to periodic tenancies. Um, and what I mean by a periodic tenancy is where the written tenancy has come to an end, but the tenant remains in occupation. Um, the Landlord and Tenant Act 1954, that kicks in and grants the tenant a new tenancy. Um, and the duration of the tenancy is all to do with the, the term of the original tenancy and has special means of terminating under the uh, Landlord and Tenant Act. Um, 
And it will also, and this is where the uncertainty can arise, is whether it relates to contracted out leases. What a contracted out lease means is where the security of tenure provisions from the Landlord and Tenant Act have been specifically agreed that don't apply. Um, we think it's likely to catch those tenancies as well. Right. Um, tenancies we don't think it will apply to, or tenancies I think we know we won't apply to, are licenses. Um, uh, tenancies at will, which is essentially just where there's, there's no other means of categorising the, the legal basis of occupation. Um, but it won't apply to agricultural tenancies or tenancies relating to mining and things of that nature. That's all very specialised sectors and won't, won't cover those tenancies. Okay. Can you talk a little bit about the proposed implementation of the binding arbitration scheme and how it will work in practice? I can, yes. It's, um, at the moment, the, the only information we have is what's in the draft bill. Um, so it is possible that the, the final result will look slightly different. Um, but the way this is going to work, if um, the, 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 with the new arbitration scheme, it's going to bring with it a new code of practice as well, which already exists, but at the moment it's only voluntary. So either party, for one reason or another, can simply choose not to follow it. But what the whole purpose of is to encourage both parties to talk. Uh, that's, that's the key to everything, is to get both parties talking with a view to resolving the dispute between themselves. Um, any rent of any amount can be referred to this arbitration process and either party can instigate this process. Um, so if there is a dispute and if talks are breaking down, it's open to either party to say, okay, we've got a situation, we've reached an impasse, let's arbitrate. And that's how it's designed to work. Um, what will what the code of practice will require the parties to do is if if you are the party making the referral to arbitration you will put forward a proposal to resolve the the debt um, what then happens is the other side get 14 days to respond um, and they can put forward a counter proposal um, and if there is no response to that initial letter then the party making the initial referral suggestion can then apply uh, for arbitration themselves, but they have to wait until 28 days after their first letter was sent. So that's how it's going to work. Um, and then in terms of how the disputes will be resolved, the arbitrator is going to look at um, whether the solutions are viable, or whether the business is solvent, and according to those principles will make whatever award essentially it sees fit. That's how that will work. It'll be interesting to see how that goes. And, and will, so, will existing cases be affected? Um, existing cases can be uh, affected, yes. It's, uh, it's going to be interesting to see what happens, actually, because um, the effect of the arbitration uh, and the introduction of this new scheme, it's going to stay any existing cases. So any cases which are underway but not resolved, they will be stayed and they will be referred to, to the arbitration scheme. Um, if, there are, if there have been any uh, judgments awarded but are still unsatisfied, so if, if either side still hasn't paid, then that will also be referred to arbitration, which is quite interesting. So the effect that will have is um, if the tenant has been ordered to pay um, outstanding rent, uh, but it hasn't done, then it might still not have to. It can still refer to arbitration and it might still be granted relief. Yeah. So uh, again, um, if you're a landlord, you might see that as being slightly unfair, but yeah. that's the way it's going to work. Um, landlords won't be able to uh, enforce existing judgments, as I've just mentioned. Um, and the other thing that may happen here as well is when those cases come before the arbitration, the, the, the arbitrator can make whatever amendment to the judgment it sees fit. 
Um, so if it thinks the tenant should be granted relief, it will grant relief, and then that judgment will be deemed amended accordingly without any additional steps. That's, so that's one to watch out for as well. Okay, now a tricky, tricky one is what, what issues can we expect to see following the implementation of the Commercial Rents Coronavirus Bill? I think what's, what's likely to happen here is uh, a lot of the existing, uh, sorry, I say existing, pre-existing rights landlords had prior to the pandemic, all of them will kick back in. So we'll, we'll, we'll see landlords being able to forfeit their leases, mm. we'll see them being able to present winding up petitions. Mm. Um, that is in relation to um, debt which is not affected by uh, the pandemic. We'll still have, we'll have this dual yeah. system where we have the arbitration in respect of um, COVID-related and COVID-impacted um, rental debt, but then any debt which has not been adversely by the pandemic, we're going to have the separate regime where right. landlords will be able to pursue their full range of options. Um, and of course, one big thing we're expecting to see on the back of the, the winding down of all of these measures is a lot more business businesses uh, may well start to suffer from uh, insolvency and insol- insolvency-related stress. Well, that neatly segues actually into the next part of the podcast because we wanted to talk about insolvency. Yeah, the, the insolvency world saw a lot of changes as a result of the pandemic. Give a flavour of what those changes were. Yeah, without without doubt, the, the biggest uh, impact that we saw uh, through through the pandemic was the introduction of the Corporate uh, Insolvency and Governance Act. Um, and what that did is it brought with it a new um, pr- uh, temporary insolvency practice direction. And the main effects of those two things were to uh, suspend the use of statutory demands uh, on debts up to £10,000. Uh, previously, if, if you were talking about um, commercial debts, the, the previous limit for a statutory demand was actually £750. Mm-hmm. So that's a massive change that we saw um, in the insolvency world. Um, so that what that meant is that you couldn't then pr- produce a winding up petition on the back of that because what the one advantage of uh, using a statutory demand is that if that went unsatisfied, the company was deemed to be insolvent. So that cut off a lot of uh, debts and a lot of lower level debts as well, all of which still needed to be satisfied. Um, the other effect that that had as well is that if the creditor wanted to present a winding up petition or a statutory demand, they had to prove the burden was on the creditor to show that the debt wasn't affected adversely by COVID-19 or that the company would have um, experienced some kind of insolvency measure anyway. Now, that was, interestingly, right at the beginning of the pandemic, um, the cases where where I was acting, I saw a lot of um, debtors coming to me to say, I'm sorry, but my business is closed because of COVID-19. But the riposte to that was, well, these measures have only been in for two weeks. Clearly, this this debt has been... um, outstanding for quite some time you, you can't claim that covid has caused yeah. this debt um so th- but it was on the creditor pr- to prove that and that added an extra hurdle that creditors had to jump over um to uh, to get their debts recovered um it introduced uh, these measures as well they introduced a new moratorium which i mentioned briefly before uh, that increased uh, the uh, moratorium from um uh, up to 20 business days, extendable by another 20 days, um, which was quite a, a lot of breathing space for potentially insolvent companies. Because, uh, as I mentioned, w- when you trigger some kind of insolvency process, that sets the other creditors to thinking whether their debts will get paid as well. Um, so that was a big change. Um, and another change that we saw, I didn't personally see an awful lot of it, but um, uh, SEGA introduced restructuring plans, which were meant to be a, a bit of an alternative to CVAs. Um, I, as I say, I didn't see a lot of those. I think mainly because uh, people understood how CVAs worked, the processes were very similar, um, and there wasn't really an, an awful lot of need um, to use those very widely. 
Um, so those were the main issues that we saw changing. So when when will these measures end, and, and what happens is, what happens then? Yeah, these measures are going to come to an end um, on the twenty second of March, unless uh, unless the the new bill um, is delayed for, for for one reason or another. Uh, and what's going to happen is effectively we're going to be reset and put back into the position we were in prior to the pandemic. So you, you'll. Um, you will be able to use statutory demands in, in the traditional way. You will be able to present winded up petitions. In theory, that's going to make it easier um, to wind up a company if, if they owe, owe you lots of money. Um, uh, but ultimately, we'll, we'll see how that unfolds. It's not impossible that the government um, won't introduce other legislation which might affect uh, how that plays out. And what can businesses do as the, as they prepare to deal with the, with this most recent change? Yeah, the, um, the, the 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 biggest thing any business can do is take advice, take good advice early uh, as early as possible, um, and then we can see what situation it is you're facing and then act accordingly. But sort of common things we're expecting to happen. Um, firstly, as I mentioned, let's see if any further legislation will follow. But if you have a judgment already, think about enforcing it now. Um, and maximise your chance of recovery. Otherwise, when you start enforcement procedures later down the line and your debtor enters administration or liquidation, then you might find yourself recovering far less than what you might if you act quickly now. So that's one thing that you can do. Um, one thing, linking back to the property discussion we had earlier, for landlords, an insolvency measure is grounds often grounds to forfeit the lease. So it could be worth their while considering whether or not to appoint a receiver or an administrator or serve a statutory demand, anything of that nature. Because once you can do that, you can say, or rather if you can say the company's insolvent, you can actually forfeit the lease and, and take back possession of, of the property. Um, one thing, the, the, the crucial thing, as I said, I've got to reiterate, is to take advice early because once insolvency processes are instigated, it moves very, very quickly. Um, and... Uh, you can quickly find yourself at the back of the queue in terms of uh, any dividends um, if you are not well prepared in, in advance. What else should commercial landlords be thinking about? Um, if, uh, if a landlord's lease has within it or is supported by a personal guarantee, um, then without a doubt you can consider whether or not you want to enforce that means of security because uh, even, if the, uh, if, even if your tenant is going to get wound up or, or anything of that nature, um, that will necessarily involve you taking um, less uh, payment, uh, for want of a better word, um, than, than what you otherwise might do. So if, if, if you're in that situation, one thing you can do is you can go to the guarantor and say, look, you guaranteed this lease, um, the company is failing to perform the terms of that lease, uh, and so now liability falls with you. And that is a separate claim that the landlord can, can bring. Um, Issues with that, that, often that means more litigation, which um, sometimes people don't want to engage in. Um, often challenges, challenges we often face uh, with that are whether or not the, the personal guarantees were entered effectively. But nevertheless, it's something to think about um, at the very least. Um, and another point as well, which is interesting for landlords, is a, a recent Court of Appeal case of Jervis and Pillar Denton. What this case done is, is reset a long-standing rule uh, whereby... Uh, commercial rents were, n were never considered uh, administrative expenses. Well now, provided the property is um, used for the purposes of the administration, um, the rent is actually a protected administrative expense. So that has the effect of putting uh, the landlord in a better position because what it does 
it can sort of ring fences that debt and that will be treated preferential to, to other unsecured debt. So that's another uh, key point for landlords to bear in mind. Some good news for landlords on last, then, eh? Yeah, absolutely. Um, what, what about company directors? What do they need to be aware of if their businesses are, are facing insolvency measures? Yeah, I think um, one thing directors always need to be aware of in, in any company is their Companies Act duties. Uh, and by that, I mean the usual things that directors will be familiar with. Uh, you know, acting in the company's best interest, promoting the business of the company, all of those sorts of things they need to keep at the forefront of their mind because if they are flirting with insolvency, one, one thing that can often happen in an administration or, or a liquidation is that the, the liquidators will examine the conduct of the directors and in terms of trying to work out why the company ended up in the position it's in uh, and if it can find uh, any wrongdoing by the directors, then they need to be um, prepared to deal with those. Um, and in particular, there's, there's another aspect of director conduct that they do need to be aware of, because another measure of uh, SEGA was that it relaxed the rules on wrongful trading. Yeah. Um, yeah. What wrongful trading means is tr- effectively trading while you're insolvent. Yeah. It's, it's actually a criminal yeah. offence, and, and, and directors can be, can be imprisoned for that. So... Um, while those rules were relaxed, and the relaxation extended quite far, actually, because it meant if a company was balance sheet insolvent, and what I mean by that is its balance sheet showed um, more liabilities than it had assets, then the company would be traded wrongfully. But in, under SEGA, they were allowed to get away with that, for want of a better word, um, because the government appreciated that you know, businesses across the country were facing a lot of stress. That is going to wind to an end at the same time as well, at the end of March. So wrongful trading is going to be something um, to be to, to, to be, be back very mindful yeah, of. Yeah, yeah, yeah. absolutely. Uh, one last thing I'd like to touch on. Um, fraud around the bounce-back loans, which I've seen some eye-watering. I think $4.9 billion. This is yeah. just for bounce-back loans. Yeah. Uh, is there anything you can shed any light on this? Yeah, uh, this I think is going to be a really hot topic uh, coming out coming out of the pandemic. I mean, it was a fantastic scheme. It kept a lot of businesses afloat. Um, the purpose of the bounce back loans, as most people will be familiar with, was to keep um, companies liquid, to keep money in the business, to to meet you know uh, third party contracts, to keep lifeblood pumping through the company. What we have seen, <laughs> there are stories in the press of. Um, you know, I think just recently there were some company directors that um, took quite substantial amounts of money from bounce back loans and were effectively buying and selling prestigious cars and things of that nature. Um, HMRC, who administered the whole loan schemes, uh, they've made it very clear that they're going to be hot on the heels of people who have misused um, those loans. Um, so if, if a company does become insolvent and, and an administrator or a liquidator starts investigating, it is going to look at the last point at which the company was solvent, where these bounce-back loans went, and if they were used for anything other than their original purpose, which was, as I said, to keep companies afloat, yeah. then they are going to be asking some very serious questions. And, and we do expect um, uh, prosecutions, we do expect um, claims civil claims from HMRC to recover those funds. And what it, of course, means as well, um, if, if you've been a very clever fraudster and you've dissipated some of these, these assets that you might have bought with um, misused funds, then you could well face proceeds of crimes um, proceedings as well. So that is definitely a hot topic we're expecting to, to come to the fore. Okay, so bring point on which to end. Thanks very much, Chris. All right, thank you. Thanks for listening to this episode of Baines Explains. 
You can find more information about the topic discussed today and sign up for regular alerts on changes to case law and legislation by visiting our website www.baineswilson.co.uk To keep up to date with what our team is up to, follow us on Twitter and on LinkedIn by searching Baines Wilson LLP. Don't forget to subscribe to Baines Explains and tune in next week for another episode.